This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today is our August edition of Incentives and Instincts, a monthly series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader challenges facing our society. Today, we grapple with the changing nature of living in Montana. So, Bryce, you spend a lot of time working in community development, interacting with business owners, policymakers. Folks are charged up right now. What's going on out there? Well, obviously, a series of big shocks related to COVID. But in Montana, the big one is housing. Mm -hmm. We've seen in different markets... 30, 40% increases in housing prices. I think rents in Missoula are up 16%. Vacancy rates are almost non-existent. People are getting pushed out of their houses because the landlord wants to sell the house because the price is high or is seeking a much higher rent or is turning it into an Airbnb. And, you know, there's just been a larger than normal or at least noticeable increase in tourism. And I think there's a lot of sense in amongst people that... Things are changing quickly and not in ways that they like. Uh, and that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. It, you know, whether it's my friend who's decided they don't want to live here anymore or I'm struggling to find housing or whatever it is. But, yeah, there's definitely a sense that there's tension. There's definitely tension in the various meetings I've been in. And not always in, like all in the same direction. It's not like we're all in agreement right. about exactly what the problem is. It's just that... Yeah, there's just definitely a things are changing and I don't like it, uh, for lack of a better way of thinking about it. It is just, and it's, it, it, things are always changing, but it's been a relatively rapid change, right? I mean, 30% housing increases that you're normally appreciating housing prices here normally. And that usually is like six years or seven years it takes to grow that fast, even in Bozeman. So the fact that you did it in a year and a half, that creates a lot of shock. And then we have to kind of grope our way through that shock and figure out, well, what's really changing and what don't we like or don't like about it? Yeah. So let's try to dig into the, that later part of your opening there. You know, what is changing? What do we do about it? We can sort of cite the rapid increase in housing prices as some mechanism involved here. That's a way to measure these effects. But when you observe them, they're, they're, they don't feel quite like something you can just attribute to a housing price. Sort of descriptively, when they feel this rapid change, you know, how is that manifesting in, in the emotions you're seeing out there? Place is important to people. Yeah. People care about the place. And normally when we think about place, we think of the physical attributes of the place, right? Mm-hmm. The climate, the mountains, the rivers. But place is more than what's fixed. It's also the people. And I think the way it most often manifests itself is, well, there's either more people and or different people okay. running around. And not just there's the new people, but also some of the old people are le- have left or are leaving. There's the composition, right? So there's, just, there's both how many people are around, but also who's around. And that matters, right? It's easy to think about, oh, I, I live in Montana because it has mountains and rivers and skiing and all that kind of stuff. But other places have that as well. And, you know, so at some point it does boil down to people choose where to live in part because of the other people that are around. Obviously, 
most often that's your family. Right. People place a very high premium on living near family. And what do we know about Montana in terms of some of these family dimensions, in terms of young people who leave, how close are they living to their parents? What do we know about Montana versus other places in the country? Okay, so Montanans are less likely to live super close than other people who live in the East. Yeah. Uh, if you're particularly in the Midwest, I mean, I think the statistics that came out a couple of years ago is that the median American lives 18 miles from their mother. Okay. And, you know, obviously you can move mom. But something like 40% of people still live in the town where they, quote, grew up. And two-thirds live within two hours of where they grew up. So Americans move. We move a lot less than we used to. But typically, they move around, but there's a shuffling, particularly when you're in your younger years. And eventually, you then settle in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where you are for at least a long period of time. And then maybe you move after you retire or something. People in the West are less likely to be living close to mom or in their hometown. And that's part of the challenge that we're talking about. People are moving to Montana. And then you also have a higher than usual number of people that grow up in Montana that actually leave. Right. Because there's, for a variety of reasons, but often because the opportunities available to them here are more narrow. Yeah, let's let's maybe drill on that a little bit. Because one of the things I've heard from entrepreneurs, from business owners, from folks thinking about economic development is that we don't have enough homegrown talent to fill the jobs that are available. So the implication there is that we have to attract out-of-state talent or train the homegrown folks better, differently. So you know, how do we kind of resolve that? A lot of folks here leave because the jobs aren't as good, but a lot of people trying to hire for jobs here say the people aren't you know, qualified enough. Like, how, Where does this land? Okay, so basically the pattern in Montana is kids who grew up in Montana and particularly if you get a college education, historically, two-thirds of them left the state and didn't come back. Wow. We import enough to almost but not quite balance out those who leave. We don't have a ton of net brain drain. We have a lot of gross brain drain, but we bring back different people and they almost get us back to exactly where we would be if all the natives stayed. Okay. Right? So that's basically, and again, this is all about college graduates, which is, you know, a subpopulation. But, sure. But that's the basic pattern, right? And then, you know, there's this constant shuffling of, because, you know, every year about 5% of, well, 4% of Montanans, 5% of Missoulians, 7% of people in Gallatin County moved there from out of state in the last year. And those numbers are high relative That's, to yeah, other states. Yeah. I mean, it typically, you know, so in the lowest states are about 2%, you know, typical states like three, but almost a fifth of those people are native Montanans coming back. It's the story of how I ended up here, right? Right, I, right. You know, I married a Montanan who did not live in Montana during her 20s uh, and then got to the end of her 20s and was like, it is time to go back to Montana. I know lots of people who followed that pattern uh, here in Montana. So, you know, there's this constant shuffling in and out. So it's hard to say exactly how much of the migration of people that we see are actually truly new people in Montana. Because we only actually, the census only keeps track of if you were born here. It doesn't count if you grew up here. You know, so I was born someplace else. I moved here when I was a baby. Spent my entire childhood here. I don't count. Or I came here for high school or for college or, you know, and 
typically, at least from my conversations with businesses and the business, you know, the number one thing you try and recruit if you're trying to recruit somebody to Montana is somebody who already has a tie to Montana. So they're more likely to stay. Yeah, they're more likely to stay. They already have a connection. There's already family or friends or, you know, they, they know what they're getting into with the, with, with the winter. You know, they're kind of, and they're motivated to be here. And so that's kind of the normal pattern of, of shuffling that we've seen. And again, we're dealing with a different scale and maybe a different nature but that's the long-term pattern, and that's been the pattern in Montana for a really long time. And, and interestingly, if you look at the share of people born in Montana that still live in Montana, it has not changed much, right? In 1980, it was 57%. In 2000, it was 56%. Now it's like 54%, or at least it was in 2019. And then, you know, if you go further back, it was 25% in 1910, obviously. So Montana has incorporated people over a long period of time. So we're constantly churning. But in recent decades, and literally my whole life, that share of people born in Montana that, or at least tell the census that they were born in Montana, that still live in Montana. Now, maybe they're lying to the census, but using that data, you know, we've kind of got a baseline there. So we've got this changing composition factor. We've got growth in population, which we're learning more and more about. And then we've got some like structural changes happening in the economy, where the new jobs are and where the old jobs are disappearing. All of these kind of roll up into contributing to this pressure on housing prices, upward pressure. Because And we're not building new housing supply at a rate to keep up with a lot of these changes. Yeah, certainly not with a short-run change, right? Right. You know, so when you take... And at least anecdotally, we don't have awesome data. We have a little bit of data, but you know, essentially what you have is COVID hits, two things happen. First, people start working from home. And if I'm going to work from home or I expect to work from home most of the time going forward, well, now I'm, I'm no longer in a, in a housing market that's tied to the location of my job, right? I have now moved into a national housing market. So normally we're shopping for three things at once, job, housing, quality of life. That's how we normally think about markets, right? Now, in places that have a really appealing quality of life, there's a small, historically relatively small group of truly footloose people. They didn't need a job, right? So those are retirees. Those are people who have funds from capital markets or people who just had the rare job that could work from anywhere. So what does COVID do? The first thing is, well, maybe it increases the share of people in that last group. These people who are, I can work wherever I want. I didn't really like this city that I was living in, but it's where my job was. And now I'm like, well, I don't have to live in this city anymore. I'm going to go find the actual place that I think I want to live, and I'm going to live there. Right. So that's the first increase in demand that we had in the short run. We've had a, 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 an increasing group in that middle group, the people who can, you know, had money to live wherever, bought second homes or whatever it is. That has gone up over decades. But this last group, that's a shock. The other thing that happens simultaneously is, so it used to be that there was kind of this tension between what we call consumer amenities, so urban amenities like theater and concerts and restaurants, and rural amenities like mountains and rivers and streams and space. And obviously, during COVID, those urban amenities have become almost worthless. There have been no concerts. There have not been sporting events. There have not, you know, yeah, you could go to a restaurant, but it was a little different. And we've also seen a relative change in the value of what 
places like Montana offer or historically have a, we have our advantage in versus what the big city had to offer. Now, some of that will hopefully maybe mitigate over time. But again, if I'm making a decision now, a lot of people are pretty short. It's like, I don't care about those anymore. Let me go do with those. Now we'll see where it equilibrates over the long run, but that's what's pushing people into Montana. And again, well, what's the mechanics here? We only have a certain number of houses and we only build so many at a time. We don't have in theory, we could ramp up that production capacity, but given the price shocks in that sector, it hasn't happened. So we essentially have a fixed supply of housing. We now have more people who want to buy these houses. This is just simple Pretty scarcity, straightforward right? market dynamics. Right? So we have simple market dynamics where, and now it's essentially like, well, here's the scarce good, a house in Montana or you know, housing unit in Montana. And well, there's demand. And then the suppliers are raising the price to try and make that equilibrate somewhere, but this creates the problem, right? or one of the two problems. So one is that there's now more people because there used to be vacant units and now there just aren't, right? So that's the more people side of things. But in terms of rising prices and fairly rapidly rising prices, well, there's a war now. So there's a housing unit and a bunch of people are bidding for it or trying to get it. And the market doesn't care typically who you are. It cares what are you willing to pay and what are you able to pay. You know, the problem becomes there are limits in what some people are able to pay. And you have to put both of them together because, you know, I want to stay here, but am I able to stay here? And, you know, that's where a lot of the tension that I'm hearing out in the community comes from is it's not people necessarily, quote, choosing to leave as much as it is as them feeling like they've been pushed out. We'll be back to our conversation with economist Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Build it, bike it, ski it, hike it. Come be a part of the process for creating a new and better Marshall Mountain as the city embarks on a journey to bring the beloved Missoula Mountain into public ownership. Parks and Recreation will host a community celebration at Marshall Mountain on September 12th from 1 to 4 p.m. Residents will have a chance to tour the site and learn how to become involved with the planning for the future Marshall Mountain Recreation Area. Check it out. Hi, this is Joe Anderson. I am the CEO of Reflex Protect, and you're listening to A New Angle. I'm speaking with economist Bryce Ward about the state of discontent here in western Montana. Well, a couple of the things that I'd like to just draw out there. I mean, you mentioned job mobility as a variable that was sort of, you know, accelerated during COVID. You know, there was a time where those jobs you mentioned that were mobile and when you mention that, I'm thinking artists and writers and sort of these these sort of professions that rep- have some sort of cultural significance within a community. Uh, those are the sorts of jobs that you can kind of take anywhere. And now those sorts of jobs and the sort of incomes that they produce or don't produce are competing in a market with people that can bring their job from Silicon Valley or from Wall Street or from Madison Avenue, wherever it is. And yeah, it's almost like this kind of position in the marketplace that artists and writers and other creative folks had 
is now being disrupted. Is that is that a, a, a re- usable way to think about it? Well, yeah, and they're not alone. Right. They're, you know, there's plenty of other people that, you know, essentially it's, well, there was a group of people that kind of had the ability to work wherever, and they already picked here. Many of them, some of them are fine. They still have high enough incomes that they're, you know, or maybe they've already bought their house, in which case then they're insured against it. It's just the next generation sure. that we're losing. But, but to the extent that you hadn't, well, now you're in, you're, you're, you're competing for the same spot in the same, it's essentially a club, right? The way, a lot of times a community is just a club and, you know, the way in which we kind of allocate spots in the club is through housing prices and economic opportunity, right? You know, essentially, you know, those are the things that kind of push people in, uh, out or pull people in as well. I can make it, can I make it work here? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I guess quality of life also can fluctuate a little bit, although typically we don't think of that as changing super fast at the margin. But the quality of life piece, I mean, I, I want to get to kind of some of the characterological manifestation of this issue. So when you talk about when there's writers and artists in a community bouncing around, when there's, you know, more blue collar workers or, you know, I'm talking about the culture of a place. Because when, when higher income folks with, you know, whatever kind of jobs move in or doing those jobs remotely, they bring with them the expectation of a certain type of amenity in a city, if you will. The restaurants can change the the sort of entertainment available can change. The feel at the local bar can change. Uh, for better and for worse, is that, how do we kind of understand that? It might be difficult for an economist to put those sorts of models together, but but how do you think about those issues? Okay, so well, look, if we think about well, what is the role of people in a place, right? So, so what? If people are changing, you know, if the number is the same, but the set of people is different, why do we care? What are, the, what are the things that we might care about? So the first thing we might care about is just, look, my economic opportunity is a function of not just the number of people, but the types of people. Sure. Right? So again, we can use artists, but we can also use a manufacturing worker or a service worker. Or a logger you know. or a miner yeah, or yeah. somebody so, like that. You know, let me just use manufacturing. If I'm a, if I run a manufacturing firm that's here in Montana, I, I'm competing in a global market. I can charge this price for my products, and that means I can only charge pay this much for workers. Well, suddenly my workers can't afford to live here, and I can't hire people at the wage that I can afford to pay. Well, now I have to shut my whole firm down, and there may have been people that could still want it, you know, able and willing to work at my plant, but now I got to lay all them off. Right. Right. And so my economic opportunity is a function of the other types of people that are around me. Can the businesses that employ people like me, are they viable at the wages that you have to pay to afford housing here? Right? So that's the first thing I care about. The second thing I care about is, look, if I'm a kid growing up here, the opportunities that I face and you know where I'm likely to end up is a function of the types of people in my community. We have very nice evidence of that that's been developed recently. Third thing you already mentioned is just, well, the bars and the concerts, the restaurants, you know, the, what we, these consumer amenities. Well, the market adapts. As long as there's enough people like me, then there will be the amenities that are like me. But if there's not enough people like me, then there won't be amenities for me. There'll be the, I'll have to adapt to the other amenities that are available. And again, that's good and bad. Those are just changes. It's interesting you say, like, if there's enough people like me, one of the themes I hear people lament is... You know, our community is getting more homogeneous, right? It sort of feels like there's less diversity on various dimensions. When I hear the word diversity, 
in this community, I feel like more sort of social economic diversity. Look, yeah. if there's more affluent people, you're going to end up with more affluent focused sure. stuff. More expensive and, restaurants uh, and fancy you know, stuff. And fancy stuff. And if there's not, then you end up with a different mix in terms of, you know, and again, this is a, that's, that's both a function of size and also, you know, variation or the, you know, composition. Yep. But, you know, then the other, you know, all this all then feeds into culture, right? So a lot of people, one of the things that people lament uh, in these discussions is they, they, you know, this, the keep Missoula weird thing, which I, I think originated in Austin, moved to Portland and it's found its way here. So clearly, again, this is not a new phenomenon. But that's all, that phrase, it it is fundamentally about this thing, which is the fundamental problem that exists not just in Montana, but in a lot of communities in the West, which is at some point it was a low cost, nice place to live. People kind of created a culture here that had this nice mix of things that people liked, but those things aren't fixed. They're dependent on the set of people. And as you push those people out, by letting housing prices rise. If you can't accommodate them through more supply and keeping housing prices low, which creates a different set of problems, then you lose some of those elements. You know, or people lament about New York City too, to be honest, right? Oh, yeah. The golden days of the 70s, which lots of people think of as the dark period of New York City, was also a great period for artistic endeavor and culture and all this kind of stuff. There's this tension that's fundamentally there. And you know, the last place it manifests itself is in politics. If the set of people changes in your community over the, some period of time, it, obviously, it's important to remember, it doesn't change that much overnight the vast majority of people that live here are going to be the same people that were here two years ago. But, you know, so that, but that's the last thing that people can cause tension uh, as communities change is what ideas about how things work are these people bringing and how is that going to change how public services are offered or what kind of things we're going to support and, you know, or what policies we're going to implement. And so all of those things, those are the so what of, changing composition. And those are all real, right? You know, those are all definitely real fears that the place changes with the people. The question is, is are we okay with that? Or do we want to, you know, not let it it change? What what is our choice? What does the not let it change look like? Does it look like building a ton of housing really fast? Well, there's going to be plenty of people that say, that's bad. I don't want more people in my space. I mean, it's just a function of crowdedness. So like, how do you, outside of like building a wall and sort of disbanding any market function, how do you preserve the aspects of the community that people seem to be most upset about changing? Yeah, I desperately tried to find this. Uh, So in like 1970, um, there was, in Los Angeles, there was like a commission about, planning and growth or whatever it was. And like, there's a memo somewhere, which is like things that they heard from people about how to deal with this. Mm. Right. And they included things like build a wall or shoot people. And you wow. know, it was like, you know, keep people out. And sure. it was like, well, we don't have any ability to do that. Yeah. But the reality is, is that at the margin anyway, the bulk of the pressure is just the market pressure. So you have basically two options, right? You can let more people in, Right, and that allows you to, you know, keep their housing prices down. You're not pushing people out. It allows you to keep the diversity of people, your friends, your family that you're, you know, you're concerned about having to leave. Well, they'll still be able to live here if they want to, but you're just pushing the price change into quality of life or economic opportunity. 
And in particular saying, well, what happens if I let more people in? Well, there's going to be more people on the river. There's going to be more people at the trailhead. There's going to be more people on the road. There's going to be more people at the restaurants. It's going to be harder to get a ticket to Logjam. It's going to be, you know, it's it, all of that comes with more people. So there's essentially two things that people don't like. I don't like more people and I don't like the set of people to change. But if you're somebody who doesn't like either of those things, you're at war with yourself. Because the only opportunity to alleviate one is through sacrificing the other. And so the, the challenge is, is, well, where's the middle ground? How do we try and figure out what's the you know, agreement that we can kind of live with in terms of, yeah, we're going to have to have some people that get pushed out, but we're going to keep this set of people. We're going to keep housing prices at maybe a level that we can kind of live with and economic opportunity and quality of life. You know, and it's you got to pick who you want to be, pick the battles that you want to fight. Because if you don't, if you don't actually make a decision, usually what ends up happening is you just kind of keep doing what you're doing. And ultimately, over the long run, the trajectory that we've been on in at least some parts of Montana has been, it's just going to get more expensive, right? So you can either act to fight against it getting more expensive, or you can, you know, Essentially, what we've, we've, we've selected into is a modest population growth, but more than modest housing price growth. And if that's okay with you, then yeah, you're just, we're just accepting that 20 years from now, the parts of Montana that are at the forefront, you know, the front line of the increase in demand for place, yeah, they're just going to be different. They'll be richer. They'll be more unequal. I have different preferences. But though I, I recognize that that is my own preference, right? It's not because it's absolutely wrong for somebody to say, no, I would much rather live in a homogenous community of affluence, right? Lots of people like that. Mm-hmm. Lots of people um, choose that. Now, we can have an argument now and say, I don't want Missoula to become that. I want Bozeman to become that. Or I don't want Kalispell to become that. I don't want it, Whitefish to be, you know, whatever these places, Helena, you know, I don't want them to become that. And we can have a discussion, but we have to then be real about, I'm willing to give up some of the solitude or more accurately, I'm going to push for more capacity to accommodate that. But that means that, you know, look, so th- there's always somebody's losing. And so, you know, in, in this has gone on forever, but to the extent that it's maybe has accelerated, you know, look, if work from home persists, it's a huge potential shock. Yeah. Particularly here in Montana. You know, because if it's, if it really is a, we move to a, you know, if it's, if it's a hybrid model, you got to be in the office four days a week or three days a week, the margin's limited. Right. We've just seen what happened. This is not huge margins, right? It feels like it. But again, the market only cares about the margin. So if you go from having a normal, you know, turnover of whatever in Montana is 4% a year, you know, if only 3% of people wanted to leave and an equivalent of 5% of people wanted to move in, you'll soak up almost every vacant unit in the state. Pretty quick. And that will drive your housing prices up, right? That tiny of a margin, Mm -hmm. because supply response in housing can't respond that fast. It just can't. You know, we didn't have a ton of vacancies to begin with, at least in some parts of the state. Even pretty minor changes in the share of people that work from anywhere will put us on a different level and then a different trajectory going forward from that. And if it grows, right, if it's like, well, long term, it just is like, yeah, 
you know, you're an office worker and, you know, you reach a certain point in your career that you get, you get your golden ticket to go f- live wherever you want. There's a lot of people who would rather live someplace like Montana than live in a big city. Well, I mean, I think that is one positive kernel on which to land this ship, Bryce, is that Montana is a great place to live, but the secret is out. Uh, I don't know if we've solved any problems in, in this conversation, but I think you've helped us sort of understand why some of these changes are happening and maybe how we can go about thinking about them more intelligently to, um, you know, if we want to be good citizens of this community, this, this gave us some tools to do just that. Thank you, Bryce. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.